If you visit the underworld, could you return? The underworld is considered a place where the dead go, Christians call it hell, and it is full of darkness, mystery, and, for us, many millennia of myth. In this video, I will tell you about the myths about the journeys to the underworld, from ancient Scandinavia, through Greece, and into Sumer, and also Egypt as well, with the purpose of uncovering the significance this place holds for many cultures and its differences, and answering the question, can you come back once you go there? So if that sounds interesting to you, then grab yourself a cup of tea, and welcome to Crackenford. I've discussed the other world and the early form of the underworld, and the lord of this realm, in these videos, but that view was a purely Indo-European influenced look. Today, I'll also uncover some Near Eastern focused mythology alongside the Indo-European to see if we can understand the motifs within the myths. And at the end of the video, I will explain why these myths exist as they do and where they do. And so let's start with the oldest version of a dying and rising god myth that we know in Anna's descent into the underworld. Inanna was the Sumerian goddess of love, fertility and warfare, and she decided to visit the underworld, a place the Sumerians called Kur, which was ruled by her sister, Ereshkigal, the goddess of death and the afterlife. Before leaving to go down into the underworld, Inanna instructs her servant, Nishhuba, to seek help from the gods Enlil, Nana and Enki, if she does not return within three days. Inanna then dons her royal attire, seven items of clothing and jewellery, and proceeds through the gates of the underworld, demanding entry through each one. The gatekeeper, Neti, informs Inanna's sister, Ereshkigal, of Inanna's arrival, and Ereshkigal instructs Neti to open the gates one by one. But to pass through a gate, Inanna is requested to remove an article of clothing or a piece of jewellery. By the time Inanna goes through the final gate and reaches the depths of the underworld, she is naked and powerless. Ereshkigal is angry about her sister's visit and directs the judges of the underworld, the Anugniki, to pronounce a judgment upon Inanna's intrusion. And they sentence her to death. And before too long, Inanna's lifeless body is left to hang on a hook. Inanna's predicament means that she does not return to the world to live in within three days and so Ninshubur does as Inanna requested and seeks help from the other gods. Enlil and Nana refuse to intervene but Enki, the god of wisdom and water, decides to help and creates two sexless beings called Kurga and Galatur. For Annie creates these from the dirt beneath his fingernails and sends them into the underworld with the food and water of life and instructs them to be sympathetic to Ereshkigal's anger and pain. When Kugala and Galatur eventually reach the depths of the underworld, they follow Enki's instructions and comfort Ereshkigal, who at this moment happens to be in the throes of childbirth. Ereshkigal is grateful for their support and allows them to choose a gift and they request Inanna's body, which they then sprinkle with food and water of life, which revives Inanna. 
Now, Oreskigal agrees they can have Inanna, but she insists that a substitute must take her place in the underworld. The choice for Inanna was relatively easy, as she found out that her husband, Dumuzi, didn't mourn for her when she was gone, and so she chooses him. He, however, is supported by his loyal sister, Gishtinana, who shares his time in the underworld with him. And it is now such that when Dumuzi is in the underworld, the winter and spring come, and Gishtinana is in the underworld when the seasons of summer and autumn arrive in the land of the living. This is a very famous myth, and there is a lot to unpack within it, and I will go over the key points here. But I do want to say that if you want me to deep dive into any of the myths I mention in this video, then just let me know in the comments below. And so, whilst the conclusion of this story seems straightforward, it is used to explain the seasons, and why they are, how they are, the reason why Inanna goes to the underworld in the first place isn't entirely clear. It is thought that Inanna is either looking to expand her kingdom, or her power, or to challenge her sister's rule, which explains her sister's anger. But there are some academics who believe that she initially embarks to the underworld to rescue her husband, Dumuzi, although this is not explicitly stated in the text and there is much to suggest that this reason wouldn't fit the general narrative of the story, which seems to be about Inanna's journey as opposed to her husband's. But the fact is that there is some mystery here, and for the time being, we will never know her reasons. And then there are some very interesting motifs within the myth. First off, we have Inanna's lifeless body hanging on a hook, which some biblical scholars believe is a version of the crucifixion, and so could suggest it influences the story of Jesus, as is, this was written long before the New Testament. But the way she's brought back to life, and then replaced, suggests this story has different reasons for being told. Although the personal sacrifice of death is a motif often used to suggest that it is the ultimate sacrifice, irrespective of whether you come back from it or not. And that is the motive we should consider as being the most important here. We also see Enki create Kugara and Galatur from the dirt beneath his fingernails. And this is very interesting as it is a motive we see in early creation myths. And in these myths, it is how the land is created from the dirt under the fingernails, which is considered magical. And so this may be an evolution of this motif, turning it into the ability to create living beings from that dirt. And the myth's overall purpose could be considered as having a theme of duality about life and death and between the power dynamic between the realms of the living and the dead. And so as Inanna's husband and his sister visit the underworld, this duality is reflected in the seasons. Inanna's journey could be interpreted as a representation of the cycle of life, death and rebirth, which is reflecting the agricultural cycle as a whole. And one final point to raise, the myth could also be interpreted as a nod to the loss of power and identity as one goes to the underworld. And this could be noted to ensure that the cycle of politics and the 
heritage of royalty could be established and continued after the death of an individual. In the Egyptian version of the underworld, the ancient Egyptians believed that this realm was multi-layered, delivering an afterlife they called the Duat, which represented both the physical and the spiritual realms. Early stories had the sun god Ra travelling through Duat during the night, and deceased souls would join him on the journey, facing various trials and obstacles. Their final judgement of the soul would then take place in the Hall of Mat, where the heart of the deceased would be weighed against a feather. And this symbolised truth and justice. And then after this walk, Ra would then wander across the sky, providing light to the land of the living. But perhaps the most well-known myth in Egyptology is that of Osiris, a myth about a god's death, resurrection and rule in the afterlife. Osiris is the god of fertility and agriculture and the dead, and played a crucial role in Egyptian beliefs surrounding the afterlife and the cyclical nature of life and death. And this story begins with Osiris, who is a benevolent god, and who is married to Isis, the goddess of magic and healing. But Osiris also has a brother named Set, and he is envious of Osiris's power and success. And so, like all good stories of sibling rivalry, he conspires to overthrow him. Now, to this end, Set has a cunning plan. And the plan is that he would create a beautifully adorned sarcophagus tailored to Osiris's exact measurements. And during a feast, he will offer the sarcophagus to anyone who fits perfectly inside it. Osiris is unsuspecting of his brother's intentions and during this feast agrees to lie down in the sarcophagus, but in doing so he finds himself trapped within it. And it is this point that Set seals it and throws it in the Nile. The sarcophagus with Osiris inside drifts to Byblos where it becomes encased in a tamarisk tree and this specific tree is eventually cut down and turned into a pillar for the palace of the Byblos king. When Isis hears about Osiris's fate, she sets out to find her husband's body and using the wisdom of Anubis, the god of embalming and mummification, she manages to find and retrieve Osiris's body from the palace in Byblos and brings it back to her home. Here, Isis uses her magical abilities to temporarily revive Osiris just long enough for her to conceive their son, Horus. However, Set discovers that Osiris's body has been found and returned, and so goes to dismember it, scattering it in 14 pieces uh, across Egypt. But Isis is a faithful wife and is determined to honour her husband, and so starts searching for all the pieces. But she only finds 13 pieces, one piece is missing, Osiris's phallus, and this is because it was eaten by a fish. But all is not lost as Isis fashions a replacement from gold and again asks Anubis for help. And he embalms and reassembles Osiris's body. Osiris is now resurrected, but as he is not physically complete, he cannot remain in the world of the living and so he must enter the duet and stay there. And it is this moment that he becomes Lord of the Afterlife, the God of the Dead, judging the dead and ensuring they journey to the afterlife when their time is right. 
This myth creates a ruler of the underworld and explains the cyclical nature of life and death alongside the concept of divine kingship. These cycles of life and death, much like other myths in this region, reflect agricultural cycles, the seasons and the flooding of the rivers and in this specific case the annual flooding of the Nile, which was essential to Egyptian agriculture. There is also an understanding of balance within the cosmos, which is part of Egyptian belief, with Osiris balanced by Set, order with chaos, life with death. And this balance was essential to the harmony of the universe in the Egyptian culture. And finally, we should add that the presence of Anubis helped inform those listening to this story in ancient times that a proper burial is required as part of the culture to ensure the appropriate cycles of life continue and to ensure that one can enter the duet without issue. The myth of Proserpina's abduction and stay in the underworld, known as the Rape of Proserpina, is a central narrative in Roman mythology and the story which closely parallels the Greek myth of Persephone. And so I will place notes on the screen with Roman names and Greek names as I tell the myths so they, because they are so closely linked. The story begins with Proserpina picking flowers in a meadow. And Proserpina is the daughter of Jupiter and Ceres, who are in effect the sky father and earth mother. And so she is an important figure in mythology. Now, on this fateful day of flower picking, Pluto, the god of the underworld, abducts her because he has watched her for a while from afar and has become infatuated with her. Proserpina's mother, Ceres, is not best pleased with her daughter's going missing and becomes distraught over her daughter's disappearance and looks to find her. Ceres searches for nine days and nights and is so focused on looking for her daughter that she neglects her divine duties and this results in famine as the earth loses its fertility. And on the ninth day, the sun god, Sol, who saw the abduction, informed Ceres that it was Pluto who abducted Proserpina, but also that her husband, Jupiter, had given Pluto permission to take her. Ceres is not a happy wife at this point, and so confronts Jupiter and demands that he orders Pluto to return their daughter. Jupiter agrees, although he states it is because he is concerned about the state of the earth and the repercussions he may face from the other gods if he does not placate Ceres. And so he sends Mercury, the messenger of the gods, down into the underworld to negotiate Proserpina's release. Now, Pluto agrees to let her go, but before she leaves, he tricks her into eating a few pomegranate seeds, as according to ancient Roman and Greek beliefs, consuming food in the underworld binds one to that realm. And so this would bind Proserpina to the realm of the underworld, meaning that she would have to return to this realm and to Pluto. Proserpina is then freed and eventually reunited with her mother, but Ceres discovers that her daughter has eaten the pomegranate seeds, meaning her daughter must return to the underworld. And Ceres looks for an agreement amongst the gods to allow her daughter to, well, stay with her. 
and following another discussion with Jupiter and Pluto, a compromise was reached where Proserpina must spend part of the year in the underworld with Pluto and the rest of the year on Earth with Ceres. And this division of time is commonly understood as one third of the year in the underworld and two thirds of the year on the Earth, the land of the living. But the amount of time does actually vary in different versions of the myth. There is no doubt that this myth helps explain the seasons, why the Earth Mother causes drought as she's distraught that her daughter has gone, and how her daughter's time in the underworld represents an, well, an unproductive, non-fertile time of the lands. Many academics associate this time with winter, and so the time the daughter returns from the underworld is when spring arrives. But there is a growing consensus amongst academics that actually this time in the underworld could represent the dry summer months. It is, after all, only a four-month period, and winter is longer than that. And it would also make sense as the Earth Mother doesn't give water to the land during summer as she's distracted looking for her daughter. Now, the analysis and comparison to seasons and the cycle of life isn't new, but this myth has another motif, and this is most telling in the most complete version of the myth that is found in the Homeric Hymn to Demeter, where it is implied that Persephone was a virgin when abducted, and so at the heart of this version, the story is a tale of a bond between Demeter and Persephone, between mother and daughter, and a bond that is broken with the abduction and restored when Demeter's daughter is returned. In effect, we can look at this as a motif of the initiation of womanhood, innocence and the loss of innocence, which happens when Proserpina is away in the underworld with Pluto. And if you want to learn more about this view of the myth, then I can recommend Bruce Lincoln's paper, The Rape of Persephone, a Greek scenario of women's initiation. And as I've said before, if you want me to talk about any of this or any of these myths in detail, let me know in the comments as you're pressing that like and subscribe button. The myth of Orpheus's descent into the underworld is a well-known narrative in Greek mythology revolving around themes of love, loss and the power of music. But it is also one of the oldest myths we know as humans, certainly over 20,000 years old, as we find it also being told from Greece to the tribes of the First Nation North Americans. And I talk more about that in my video on the Ferryman of the Dead. Orpheus is a legendary musician and poet who falls deeply in love with a nymph named Eurydice. Tragically, shortly after their wedding, Eurydice is bitten by a venomous snake and dies. Orpheus grieves so much that he decides to descend to the underworld to retrieve his beloved wife. Orpheus embarks on his perilous journey, lyre in hand, and using his ability to play enchanting music, he manages to circumnavigate the obstacles that would otherwise prevent his journey. Of particular interest is his use of music to pass the ferryman of the dead, who sails bodies across the river Styx, along with the soothing of the fearsome three-headed dog Cerberus, who guards the entrance to the underworld. When Orpheus arrives in Hades' courts, 
he performs a song so heart-wrenching that it moves the god and his wife, Persephone, to tears. And touched by his music and his love for Eurydice, Hades agrees to release her, but under one condition. Orpheus must not look back at Eurydice until they have both left the underworld. If he does, Eurydice will be lost to him forever. And so as Orpheus leads Eurydice back to the world of the living, he is anxious about whether his wife is actually behind him, for he hears no footsteps and she does not speak to him. And just as he is about to reach the surface, Orpheus, unable to resist checking if Eurydice is behind him, he turns to look back for her. And at that moment, Eurydice is pulled back into the underworld and Orpheus loses her for a heart-wrenching second time. Now, this is not a myth with a dying and rising god, but one that needed to be told to put the other myths in perspective, as within this myth there are several themes. The Greek version of this myth has the power of music transcending barriers and touching the hearts of even the most hardened beings. It is an acknowledgement of the arts and how music can affect the soul of many people and something our teenage selves probably remember very well. And whilst there are some that say there is a motif of trust and doubt within the myth, it isn't the core part of mythology we see in other versions of the myth, especially in the North American version. Although we always see a failure of the husband to be reunited with the wife in the realm of the living. And often the wife tells the husband his efforts will be futile. And so whilst it may be that we can think of there being pitfalls to the succumbing of doubt. I'm not sure it was actually a key message of this particular story. To me, the message is about death and a reflection on love and loss. Myths about death are sometimes, well, our oldest and most continuously told. The loss of immortality is a story that is widely told and even ends up as a snake in the Adam and Eve story in Genesis. No one wants to die, and that is doubly true if you're in love. The message we see here is that when one loses a true love, you will go to any length to retrieve them. But to retrieve them from death is a journey that just cannot succeed, irrespective of how special you are. Immortality has been taken, and death is a permanent consequence of us frail mortals. And if you like this story, it's considered a twin of the story of Pygmalion, which I talk about more in this video, which not many of you have seen, and so is really worth a watch. Dionysus has an interesting story, which can be found in various sources, such as the Homeric Hymn to Dionysus and Nonesus Dionysica. The story begins with Semele, a mortal woman and daughter of Cadmus, king of Thebes, who becomes pregnant by Zeus. This upsets Hera, Zeus's wife, who, being jealous of her husband's affair, disguises herself as Semele's nursemaid and convinces Semele to request that Zeus reveal himself in his true divine form. Zeus is unable to refuse her request and appears before Semele as a lightning bolt. This causes her to be consumed by flames causing their son Dionysus to be born prematurely. 
Zeus rescues him from his dying mother's womb and then sews the infant into his thigh until he is ready to be born. Dionysus is eventually born and when he reaches adulthood he learns of his mother's tragic fate and resolves to journey to the underworld to retrieve her. Descending to the realm of Hades, Dionysus confronts the god and his wife Persephone and persuades them to release Semele from the realm of the dead. He then brings her to Mount Olympus where she is transformed into the immortal goddess Tarni, whose name is cognate with Burnt Offering. The motifs of this myth are much like that of the Orpheus story, a myth about love which you do not want to lose but you have lost to death. But the difference is that Dionysus is divine and this allows him to make the journey in terms of taking his mother to Mount Olympus and to request her to be divine and made into a god through his love to her. And this could also be seen as reflection of Greek society and the power of familial bonds and the lengths individuals should go to preserve them. The theme of transformation is central to the story as Dionysus's rescue of Semele results in her metamorphosis into an immortal goddess, a transformation that demonstrates the possibility of transcendence from the mortal realm and so serves as a a symbol of rebirth and renewal. Dionysus's association with rebirth and resurrection is further emphasised by his own unconventional birth and upbringing. Additionally, the myth highlights the complex relationship between gods and mortals in Greek mythology. I mean, Semele's tragic fate is as a result of her affair with Zeus, and which underscores the potential dangers of becoming involved with divine beings, especially Zeus, who liked to get involved with as many women as he could. However, her ultimate resurrection and transformation into an immortal goddess suggests that mortals can achieve a form of divinity, albeit through a complex and perilous journey. The story of Baldur's journey into the underworld is a significant narrative in Nordic mythology with Baldur, the son of Odin and Frigg, known as the god of light, purity and beauty, in effect similar traits to Adonis, who I'll talk about very soon, uh, and this wouldn't be a coincidence. And I do talk more about Baldur's story in this video. And his story begins with Baldur experiencing an ominous dream foretelling his death, and so his mother Frigg decides to make all things on earth swear not to harm Baldur. But she ignores the plant mistletoe as it seems too harmless to worry about. The consequence of these oaths is that the gods can now amuse themselves by throwing various objects at Baldur and marvelling at his invincibility to things like rocks, axes, goats and small kittens. But Loki, a trickster god, recognises this oversight and fashions a spear made of mistletoe and tricks Baldur's blind brother, Huthor, into throwing the mistletoe spear at Baldur, guiding Huthor's hand to ensure it does not miss its target. The spear kills Baldur instantly, and the gods all mourn, and prepare a funeral part on a ship, setting it adrift and ablaze, and so Baldur the spirit descends to the realm of the dead, and the realm of the dead is ruled by the goddess of the same name, Hel, who is also the daughter of Loki, the same Loki who influenced the death of Baldur, 
Walder's mother, Frigg, however, is so desperate to bring her son back to life that she sends Baldur's brother, Hermod, to the underworld to plead for his return. Hermod rides for nine days and nights, and when he is finally there, he meets Baldur and pleads for hell to release him. The goddess agrees, but on one condition, that all things, living and dead, must weep for Baldur, thus showing how much he was loved by everyone. Hermod returns with the news, and so the gods and emeresses across the realms to secure the tears required to fulfil Hell's condition. And everyone and everything weeps, except for a single giantess named Thok, who we believe to be Loki in disguise. She refuses to weep, and so consequently Baldur remains in the underworld. Now for us, the gods of the Nordic people, and in fact the religions of Northern Europe, were somewhat different from those worshipped around the Mediterranean. These gods were very much mortal, and so lived their lives somewhat differently from the gods of other cultures. And so, within this story, we see Baldur die and go to the underworld, a nod to the Near Eastern myths, but then we see an additional and absolute nod to agricultural beliefs with the ritual of weeping, an analogy to rain for the god that provides fertility to the earth. What we have here then is a Near Eastern myth finding its way to the Nordic people and then remaining as a key story within their mythos. What is interesting to understand though is why it is associated with Baldur, and that is probably because he was originally associated with the sun. I mean, after all, his name means shining light. And so the story is a reflection of the motif of the sun disappearing, again, confirming its link to the Near Eastern cycle of life, the sun and the seasons. And so it is probably, along with the female motifs, one of the oldest myths in Scandinavian mythology, or one of the oldest that we can feel confidently dating. Whilst many people think of Greek myth when their name Adonis is mentioned, his origins can be traced back to the Semitic god Tammuz or Dumuzid, worshipped by the ancient Sumerians, Babylonians and Phoenicians. And this isn't unusual as we do see a number of myths that the Greeks have picked up from the Phoenicians, such as that of Aphrodite, which I talk about in this video. The myth of Adonis involves this man, is loved by both the goddess of love, Aphrodite, or Astarte in Phoenician mythology, and the goddess of the underworld, Persephone, or Eris Kigal in Phoenician mythology. And Adonis himself was born from the incestuous union between King Sindras of Cyprus and his daughter Myra, and he was considered an extraordinarily handsome young man. But being beautiful and loved by a number of women didn't mean he was lucky, for such luck has another side jealousy, and one of his admirers plans his death, driven by jealousy of other women, and so not long after this Adonis finds himself mortally wounded by a wild boar while hunting, which is not very lucky, and we find out that the accident seems to have been orchestrated by Ares, or the Phoenician equivalent, Melkart, and he is one of those who is jealous of Aphrodite's love for Adonis. And so, 
his dead body is reunited with Persephone, who takes him down to the underworld. But Aphrodite is stricken with grief and pleads with Zeus, or the Phoenician equivalent, Baal, to allow Adonis to return to the world of the living. And Zeus intervenes and decrees that Adonis will spend part of the year in the underworld with Persephone and the rest of the year on earth with Aphrodite. The myth of Adonis is a tale of love, jealousy and again the cyclical nature of life and death in agricultural cycles as this cycle was so important to the agricultural societies. It exemplifies the recurring theme of the dying and rising god a theme so popular it was taken up by other unconnected religions in the Near East later on, about 2,000 years ago. In terms of textual sources though, the myth of Adonis is primarily preserved through later Greek and Roman literary works, such as uh, Ovid's Metamorphoses and the Library of Apollodorus. However, we do find ancient Near Eastern inscriptions and artistic representations of this story which not only provides us with valuable insights into the worship of Adonis but also into the broader context of Phoenician religious beliefs which is why we believe this myth was similarly told in the Phoenician culture. The journey to the underworld motif is a common theme in Near Eastern mythology and one that continues into Indo-European mythology where we see Indo-European cultures overlay previous Near Eastern culture by the early European farmers. And we can feel confident about this as the oldest example of this myth is the Sumerian resurrection cycle of Inanna and the Dumuzi, followed by Osiris of Egyptian mythology. And then it goes to the later Persephone in Greek mythology, as well as the Adonis from the Phoenicians. We also see a lack of dying and rising gods in Indo-Iranian mythology, a subset of Indo-European culture especially when compared to surrounding cultures. And this is because this area was very pastoral based, which was very much different to the agricultural mythology. And if there ever were agricultural myths, they were probably completely overwritten as Zoroastrianism came to be. And if you're interested in this specific difference, it is also one Bruce Lincoln uses as a key point to show Indo-Iranian cultures to be more of the source for the Proto-Indo-European myth of creation than other areas, and he has a book called Priests, Warriors and Cattle, which is worth a read if you want to expand your knowledge in this area somewhat more. And so, for us, this dying and rising god motif is an influence from the Near East, and is well known to be associated with death and rebirth, and it is often applied to the cyclical nature of agricultural life, and how the sun goes tonight and back today and how the seasons roll through spring, summer, autumn and winter. Yes, we do see motifs and myths of going to the underworld, such as in the Ferryman of the Dead, or where mortals go to bring back a loved one and fail, such as the Orpheus myth. And these myths are influenced by the Indo-Europeans and before them probably by the ancient North Eurasians, which we feel confident about due to the dispersal of the Orpheus myth in North America. And these myths tend to focus around a motif of paradise lost, which is a very old motif and over 20,000 years old, and probably older still, and a myth which if we look 
on the mythology database is one that is told across most of the world. And this database is available to the patrons of this channel and contains many examples of this myth if you want to look it up. And so this allows us to understand how different cultures perceive the underworld and the rulers of those realms, as well as the two different ways of looking at it. As a paradise, what the Indo-Europeans would call the other world, and as an underworld used to explain death and rebirth cycles. Now, in most depictions of the underworld, we see the realm having levels, although we see in the Indo-European underworld, chthonic beings, figures and creatures, all guarding the way, which is a nod to the paradise lost motif, evolving into the fairy man of the dead myth, which evolves into a more judgmental route. But we also see these elements of a hierarchy of this other realm in the Near East, where Nana has to go through a number of gateways to reach her sister. And even in the Book of the Dead in Egypt, where we see references to trials as the soul travels down. This is very interesting as we consider the concept of crossing a river to be very old in origin. As I mentioned just now, over 20,000 years old. And this river crossing motif, the fair man of the dead, evolves into the Indo-Iranian Shinvat Bridge, which becomes a bridge of judgment, and then a bridge with dogs on it that guard and judge. And then we see this part of the motif head towards Europe as Cerberus, or to the Slavic region as the black and white dogs, and into India where we see the four-eyed dog. Now, considering all of this, then whilst a dog or other chthonic creatures found in this place aren't found in Near Eastern mythology, the concept of judgment does. And so we should ask ourselves, where does judgment come from to influence all these myths? But that is a complex answer, which I will save for another video. But what I can say is that if this is a multi-layered view of the underworld and can be considered the same across all cultures and judgment is the same in this underworld, then what of the rulers of this underworld are Hell and Hades uh, and Pluto similar to Ereshkigal and Osiris? Although we shouldn't forget that Osiris is made all of the underworld within the mythology rather than being ever present there. And, and we know Indo-European rulers of the underworld were originally influenced from Yemo, although again it is ambiguous whether they evolved from Yemo or from the personification of the grave, which I talk about more in this video. But to me, I think we can say that the Indo-European rulers of the underworld were more uncompromising as they live in a world where there is a bigger gap between life and death, between the living and the dead. But it is also a realm where other gods can walk into and be themselves. Whereas in the Near East, rulers of this realm are far more associated with, well, just death itself. And along with death, the rulers of these realms have power. And you see this within the Inanag myth, for example, in the realm of the underworld. She has no power, no judgment. She has to submit to her sister's power when she is there. And this difference may help explain 
how do different cultures thought about life and death? And what we also see is that the myths of this journey being added to, so the application of asexual process is applied to other things, and this is very clear in the myth about the abduction of Persephone. Here it is clear that there is a motif about the coming of age of women, and in the Old Norse myth we see the agricultural links expanded being linked to a rain ritual, and the fate of things as Loki stops the return of Balder, which could be seen as a fate slowly pulling the pieces in place for Ragnarok to happen. And in many of these myths, we see love driving the journey to bring back the dead to life. Although for mortals, this is, well, a most often failed journey. For us interested in mythology, these journeys to the underworld are worth knowing due to showing different flavours of myth with a dying and rising motif and the motif for travelling to the underworld to retrieve something unretrievable. And so when you hear these myths, you should be able to now pick out these motifs and tell where some of these myths were influenced from. And that may well tell you something about the culture telling those myths. But our journey does not stop here. There are many myths to the underworld of how to get there, or how to appease the gods. And those that are familiar with the Abrahamic myths will notice that there is no devil mentioned in any of these. Not yet. Death to our ancestors, until relatively recently, wasn't about judgment. Wasn't about going somewhere good or bad when you died. It was about ensuring you could continue living in this other realm. A realm where you're living ancestors could potentially visit but could not bring you back from. So our ancestors placed much emphasis on ensuring you lived a good life with purpose so you would remain in their thoughts and memories, something that I hope today you all do. Take care and thank you for all your support and watching, especially Thank you to my patrons. And if you want to know more about the things going on in the other world, then I suggest you watch this video. And for the rest of you, then this was Click and Fort.